Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. We are in the all new season of The Thriller Zone and I could not be happier. Boy, do we have a lineup for you. In July, forget about it. August, forget about it. September, October, no, we are booked well into the fall and I could not be happier. I wanna start out of the gate by saying thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for supporting this podcast by sponsorship or by listenership. Thank you for your four and five star reviews. Thank you for your emails and your kind gestures. Blessed, I'm humbled, and I thank you very much. We have such a lineup for you this year. You're probably wondering, hey, is is David gonna kick off the new season with some monster talent? Yes, I am actually. Have you heard of him? No, you haven't. But I'm gonna tell you about it. After this, coming up this month, here's somebody you've heard of, Dean Koontz, author of The Big Dark Sky. I got a chance to sit down with Dean Koontz and uh, you are going to be amazed at some of the things that you are gonna learn about Dean that maybe you didn't know. Next week, this just in, Brad Thor, Rising Tiger. Oh baby, I'm excited about this. I have been thinking about talking to Brad Thor. I know, excuse the geek out. I've been thinking and hoping about talking about him, talking to him maybe a year. So finally, Brad Thor has opened his schedule for us. But as I said, as part of our Discovery New Author series, Brian LeBeau has written a book called A Disturbing Nature. And if you're a fan of serial killers, serial killer thrillers, you're going to like this book. So what do you say? Without any further ado, let's get on into the thriller zone for this new season with Brian LeBeau. Hi, David. Can you hear me? I can, Brian. How are you, sir? I'm excellent. Is the is the sound okay? To be fair, the ladies usually set me up. The ladies? The, yeah, but the one that does it has COVID. Her and her kids have COVID. So well, tell her to get out of bed and get down here. That's no excuse. No. She's almost over. She's almost over it. She's but almost over it. Yep. Get, get your ass out of bed. Come down here and fix the microphone. Don't you know who this is? This is Brian LeBeau. I sense you. You're picking up my Boston accent. I'm trying to. I'm not very good at it, but I'm just going to keep going at riffing with you until I figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, how was your 4th of July holiday? It was very good. Uh, Went over to a friend's house. They had a great purview over the town here, Ramona, and uh, they shot up fireworks from uh, from the high school. It was amazing. It was actually really good. The kids were in the pool the whole time. Nice. Daddy didn't get in the pool? Uh, dad gets in his own pool. He doesn't normally get in other people's pools. Dad's a wee bit of a germaphobe. It's okay. It's just who I am. No, I just, I like to go in at night when everybody else is asleep and just yeah. relax when the water's super warm. I'm not much for going in when there's 40 people in the pool. Yeah, I'm with you. And you're naked. That's, that's a whole different thing. You don't I know. Anything. Nobody wants to swim naked but me, so it's it's uncomfortable for them. Hey, listen, don't take this the wrong way, but I would come swim naked with you uh, just because, you know, it'd be fun. Just... It, why, why do you need anything to inhibit the enjoyment of being in a pool? <laughs> Brian LeBeau and his book is A Disturbing Nature. This is his debut. That means he is a new member of the Discovery New Author series. So this uh, is a dandy little read. Dude, I got to tell you, can I just be frank with you? Yeah. Uh, let's be frank and earnest. I'll be frank. You be earnest. Okay. All right. That was my father's name. Thank you. 480 pages. And uh, this is going to show my age, but tiny print. I, 
I had to stop a couple of times to let my eyes rest a little bit. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. You don't want to pass 500. The cost of producing them goes up substantially if it crosses 500. I will say this. Uh, I probably shouldn't go off on this tangent, but I'm fresh off of three-day holiday, so I've got energy and enthusiasm, and you seem like a super swell guy that I can just be myself with. But I got to tell you, your next work, your next one, cut it down a little bit. Would you make it a little more digestible? I'm but, kidding. I'm totally No, no, kidding. that's okay. The second one, because the four-book series runs off of the same characters, no. Uh, the second book and third book are much shorter. Uh, this okay. one was 147,000 words. Oi, did I not turn this Oi. Off? Oi. Honey, turn yeah. off my phone, would you? I have the uh, girls do my where, phone. Where my... are they today? Um, in any event, the second book right now is, is going into edit. It's about 105,000 words. So that's pretty much much closer. But the first one required, because it's a true psychological thriller, all that upfront material to really get to know the characters and inside the heads of the main yeah. characters. So uh, I, you know, I went back and forth on, do I distribute that across four books? And I said, no, not in the end. I think it means more. Well, I will say this. Uh, I've run across uh, a number of debut authors and um, <clears throat> none are quite as prolific in depth as this. Not, uh, there's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad. I don't care if you write 200 pages or you write 700 pages. The chances of my reading your 700 pages are going to be more challenging because I'm reading several a week. Um, but that notwithstanding, oh, that sounds so professorial, didn't it? Uh, it really did. And having been a professor, it was right on. Brian, that notwithstanding, you'll find... Um, no, what I want to say is that it's uh, it's a great compilation of feelings, and we're going to get into that in a second. Uh, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but uh, I do want to say you're from Massachusetts in case anyone wasn't having figured out that yet. What is it about the R's? Do you guys just at birth take the R's and throw them away and go, they're not needed? I, I think there's just a preference towards A-H. I, I don't know why anybody would not understand that. The R is an overused word. It's different in every language. It's grrr, whatever your language is but for you know when you're up in massachusetts just throw them away it, yeah. they don't matter use the ah and everybody's fine i hope you're not offended by the way i'm busting your chops it's just fine yeah now i've been living in southern california now for almost 15 years and i still hear it from everyone wait a minute where are you i live in ramona just outside of san diego california dude you know where i am don't you i do not i'm in encinitas oh come on i could have walked over there Forget about it. Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm dead serious. Dude, if I had known this, okay. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make you a deal. When your next next book comes out, we're going to sit down together face to face. We won't have the girls to have to worry about doing our technology because I'll do it. I can promise you you'd prefer the girls be there. Okay, we'll bring the girls, but we're going to do it face to face. <laughs> Particularly if we're going to go swimming in your pool. Yeah. Oh my God, dude, that is so, if I had known that, I don't know why I thought, I don't think I ran across it. It's probably on your Facebook page. All right. My apologies. I should, I'm an investigator. I should know this stuff, Brian. You know, honestly, I should have, I should have checked on it. I, I looked through the website. I did not pick up that it was right here either. That notwithstanding, we're going to do it in person next time. That'll be a lot of fun. All right. So Here's another thing. So this is a psychological thriller, which we've talked about. Um, it's called A Disturbing Nature, and it is. Um, you merge three big interests uh, as you as a person, which is kind of what I dig because it, it allows me to get to know you quickly. Fascination with World War II, 
morbid curiosity with serial killers, which we all have, and we're going to get to in a second. And what's with, the, well, I was going to say lifelong obsession with the Boston Red Sox, but that kind of makes sense because you grew up there. So it only makes sense, right? But here's the intriguing thing, folks, when you get to read A Disturbing Nature, is how Brian blends several elements and incorporates them in an unusual fashion. Now, I'm going to tee you up. I don't, I, I'm not the kind of guy that goes, well, I read that uh, such and such, but I want to tee you up so that you can go from there. But what I dig is that, um, you know, you borrow from a couple of guys some of our listeners have heard about, uh, Steinbeck, uh, Hemingway, okay, and Chandler and Leonard and so forth. But I'd love to get your intake, your input, your take on how you were able to pull the um, influences of those classic masters in without copying into your thriller. You know, that was a, a hard. Uh, when I wrote the first draft, this is 30 plus years from start jotting down the concept and then four and a half years of actually writing it. 55 months was the actual count. Wow. And that was with people helping me. I had a team of, of editors and folks helping me. I wrote the original draft. It was 200 plus thousand words and it was linear. It ran through Mo Lumen's life. And obviously I knew that wasn't correct. We sent it out to readers. They loved the story. They hated the length and the, you know, that I wrote in too high a level and all these things. And so when it came time to really understand what it took to write, I had two options. I could go back to school for, for writing, creative writing. Or I could hire a few best-selling authors to show me how to write suspense. And that's what I did. And I, I did not let them ghostwrite. I told one particularly, who's an eight-time number one New York Times bestseller, that I don't want you to write this. What I want you to do is tell me what I'm doing wrong, and I'll correct it. And by doing that, I was able to start, over the course of about two years, uh, really developing a, a different voice. I won't say unique, but a different voice. And to do that, I just pulled from my favorite authors from the past. Now, in the case of Raymond Chandler, I'll give you a very good example. Uh, when you look at Palmer, Palmer has this perception of the world that everybody, yes. And let me interject something, just so everyone knows, the two primary characters, Mo Lumen, uh, the antagonist, and Detective Francis Palmer, the, the protagonist. Continue, thank you. Well, I'm glad you clarified that because I think people are going to miss the fact that it's Palmer that carries on this series as we move yeah. forward. Right. So with Palmer, I, I had read much of Chandler. And so I went back and reread a couple of his, what I consider masterpieces, although people don't tend to like Chandler as much as others. Chandler's thing was that, yeah, I know it's weird, wow. but it's true. He tends to get shortchanged when it comes to, you know, literature. And so I, I went back and read him. And it was interesting that as you read him entering in, and I'm not gonna remember uh, which book it is, but he enters the mansion at the beginning. We've all seen it uh, with Humphrey Bogart. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but he walks in and he spends like eight pages describing the facade of the mansion. Well, readers won't go through that today. They're not interested in that. So what I had to do is take Chandler and make him more terse and trite for today's audience. And so if you look at Palmer's writing, the, the style on Palmer's side, it's very short sentences and, and it's almost jarring in the way that it carries you through not only what he's thinking, but whenever we're seeing the setting, whether he's looking at Langford's mansion and comparing it to his home, these are done in a matter of eight or nine sentences in a very quick paragraph yeah. so that you're never left hanging there trying to get too descriptive. 
Well, and I like that. And it's so interesting. It is a true shift in societal norms that we have gone from really appreciate, uh, appreciating this languorous tale telling to this, come on, get to the point. Because I suppose it's a couple of things, and I'm, I'm, I'm slightly overstating the obvious, shorter attention spans, more competition for our attention, and more and in that competition for attention, you know, we've got more channels of information coming at us. We got TV, we got streaming, we got movies, we got phones. The phones are the phones are kind of slowly ruining us in a lot of different ways. But so I, I dig that, and and I think it's intuitive of you to follow the society push while still you haven't sacrificed the literary craftsmanship because, like I mentioned, at sub five hundred pages, you're getting plenty of languorousness, not even a word, um, in there. When you look at Lumen's side, the same is true on, on Palmer's side, despite the fact there's a clear difference in style. I don't know if you recognized it, but you're looking at two different voices. And yeah. that's what took two years was to come up with the distinct voices for those. Using an omniscient narrator, which oddly enough, when I sent it out to be edited through the publisher, she was more than halfway through the book and she sent me a message saying, why did you decide to start using a, an omniscient narrator now? On chapter, and I wrote back and I said, well, I take that as a compliment that you didn't even pick up. There was an omniscient narrator from the beginning. You never see the word I used in the book. Oh, not yeah, unless, yeah, yeah. Not unless it's in dialogue. And so I yeah. said, that was the third language that I had to learn to write over the course of two years. How do you put in a, uh, a, an omniscient narrator that represents my ability to be in the story and tell the story? But, a lot, but more importantly, allows the reader to be right in the settings. So when you're watching dialogue take place on either side, what I was attempting to do was to make it that you actually felt like you were there because you're seeing every motion and you're watching what's occurring between, and then you're also getting the thoughts of the primary character for that particular chapter until they meld and then you're getting one primarily and the other only when it accentuates. You know, uh, folks, this is almost, I don't wanna be, grandiose about this, but it's almost a master's class. I mean, it, it, it is so obvious, Brian, that this book took you a long time. Not not the fact that it's your first one. I mean, our first ones generally take us longer than the next ones, but you have you've really put in the time and the research and the um, the the layering atmosphere, characters, different voices. Anyway, I, I it's something to be proud of. There you go. Well, I appreciate that. I think I, I sometimes worry that readers today, having read quite a few more recent works, uh, both in the suspense and thriller category, but also recently to help out some independent authors, I've been reading other books and, and other genres. The only one that I have trouble with between you and me is smart romance, because I, I'm sorry, but you can only do that so many times to me. Did, did, no, you, say, did you say smart romance? No, smut romance. Oh, smut. It, it sounds what like what it is, right? Okay. And I get it. It's a genre. I don't have to like certain types of music, but I respect the fact that people do and that there are those people that do it well. But for me, for, to pick up that is a little difficult because I, as I'm reading it, I'm going, okay, where have I not seen this when I was 15 years old reading Penthouse Letters? <laughs> it's, I mean, and, that, and to me, honestly, that was better So because it was more direct. So, you know, I, I think it just comes down to personal taste. And there are those people that will never pick up a horror book, those that will never pick up a suspense book or mystery. And I, I totally get that, but I respect all of it, right? Everybody's got to build their voice. In this case here, what I was worried about is I want to write tales that are allegorical. 
And so if you were to take my favorite novel of all time, it's either To Kill a Mockingbird or The Great Gatsby. It's going to be one or the other. And, and so in trying to do that, I think people sometimes miss the symbolism, but you want them to have a good story to read. And they will mistake the paths that you go down, that you have to sit there and learn the relationships and the background because you're building an allegorical tale that spreads out across four books. Well, let me tell you something that hit me between the eyes when I very first discovered you. And I'm trying, I, I don't recall exactly at this moment how I discovered you, but I am a nut. If you've listened to the show, have you heard the show before? I, I've listened to a few, yes. Okay. One of my favorite things is covers. And when I saw your cover, for those who can see this at home, this cover, for whatever reason, I, I don't have an original copy of. To Kill a Mockingbird, but I, this, I have it here. All right, go grab it because this reminds me of this for some reason. There's a there's a time period sensibility of this that I can't put my finger on. No, I'm sorry. Oh, I for the, God! Um, I have the one that would have been read in the early '60s by his dad. Wait so a minute, you don't the have is, the original the at home, but I do have it, and that's what I style that after. In fact, a lot of people have picked up on that and said, all "You right. know, that reminds me of To Kill a Mockingbird." It was purposeful because I felt. This is going to sound haughty. I do not mean it to be because nobody writing their first book should aim this high. But I looked at Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn as being the great pre-Civil War work on racism. And then you take the Jim Crow law period. And I think most people would agree that To Kill a Mockingbird was that. All right. Um, I was 100% with you in case you thought I was distracted. I was trying to find this is That's what it, you're looking yes. for, right? Yeah, that is correct. And I'm going to pull this up in its original form on the screen as I edit the show. But and isn't it funny, if, rhetorical, isn't it funny that as I saw this cover, when it came out, it was burned in my brain, I, we must have had this copy around the house. So when I saw this, I'm like, why does that feel strangely familiar? And excuse me for going on and on about it, but I knew that you had purpose behind it because you were so purposeful in your writing. So I'm like, okay, there's a very specific reason. And uh, I dropped the ball on digging deeper on where that cover would have come from, but I could have spent quite a bit of time doing it. Well, I can tell you just very quickly that the cover I actually came up with in 1989 when I had the dream. I woke up and that cover was already in my head. Uh, and it's because I had all these seminal moments that were collected. I woke up in a sweat. It was a, it was a nightmare. And, you know, when I woke up, I had all these memories of things that occurred that I didn't understand as a young man. And now being older, I had these questions. Why, why would that happen? Why would it be that way? And I jotted all those things down and that cover exactly the way it looks, because that's the Kelly's Ford bridge yeah. in Virginia. Yeah. And the funny part is in 1989, yeah. I had never been to Virginia. Oh, Oh, I know it was weird. So when it came time to get the graphics person to put it together and I kept being very specific and they wouldn't get it. And I'd say, no, no, you got to have this angle because we need to see this island, and we uh, need to see the noose. We need to see the bridge running across because it's the boundary between Northern and Southern. That river, Rappahannock, represents the sins of our fathers, uh, which boy. in this case most clearly is racism. That's the, that's yeah. the black haired critters floating down the Rappahannock. But in Northern Virginia, there were virtually no, if you go back and look at the statistics, uh, blacks that were hung. I think there were three in the Jim Crow law period. Whereas if you look at Alabama or Mississippi, clearly it was much higher. Uh, so it wasn't a big issue. So the stories that his father's telling him are probably not true about his grandparents, but they represent how that racism comes across the bridge and becomes what it is in the North. 
Yeah, that is so, see, that's just rich with allegory, et cetera. And I love that. And having grown up, uh, I mean, I was born in Winston-Salem, but I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. <laughs> Speaking of weird coincidences, Lynchburg, Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me started. All right. Let's move on to this. Cause when I mentioned to my listeners, these names, just bear with me a second and think about what comes to your mind. Buddy, Gary, Dahmer, Berkowitz, you think of serial killers and then you think, what does, what do those feelings conjure up, which is dread and, and fear. Why do you think Brian, and, and I'm curious, cause you have a, a more than an obsession. You, well, you have a fond uh, appreciation for, I suppose, serial killers. And I'm, I'm kind of like you, I can't get enough documentaries about serial killers. What is our fascination with that? Well, I, I think honestly it comes down to three words, unfortunate misunderstood victims. I know that sounds weird. We always want to look through the world in a lens that's black and white. And yet, as we understand more and more about the background, the behavior, the, the experiences of serial killers, you can't help but be thankful. I mean, you don't necessarily go, oh, I feel so bad for them, but you're so thankful that you did not have the father that treated you the way they were treated, that you were given the opportunity to commiserate with people that strengthened your character, that you didn't become reserved and step away and get into your own mind and start to rationalize what the difference between right and wrong was and maybe slant the wrong way. I don't, I don't know that we've taken enough time. That was the distinction I wanted to get with the serial killers. Another thing I think people will not understand is this book series starts on the day that Ted Bundy is arrested, August 16, 1975. It ends in the fourth book on the day that he is given the death penalty. What I wanted to do was take a period that is not the most well written about. People love to write about World War II, post-World War II, 1950s America, 60s across the Cultural Revolution and everything else. They jump to the 80s and the Reagan Revolution and the 80s make it, but the 70s kind of get missed out because it was a stagnant time in America. Things were closing down, things were opening up, but we weren't seeing the worst of those, whether it was the Vietnam War or it was the recession that we had in the early 1980s of, or inflation. And one of my favorite uh, television shows on Serial Killer came along, I wanna say last year or two years ago, Mindhunter. I loved that show. And I, it wasn't, my wife and I were sitting there watching and all of a sudden we realized that, wait a minute, they're not using the phrase serial killers, they were using the phrase. Was it mass murderer? It, it maybe it was mass murderer, but that show, related to me the fact that serial killer phrase did not come either right in that show or at the by the end of that show didn't that wasn't that the show that kind of discovered that and said well it is, it is those individuals that were involved initially in bringing uh, the psychotherapy behavioral unit into the fbi so a lot of those shows are dating back to a period where it would have not been customary to use the term serial killer right. this term serial killer was first used with john wayne gacy it was used within the FBI as they were profiling him, and they'd gotten to a point where they could indicate, because they had been watching him for a while, that he was, in fact, a serial killer, a person who was just going to serially keep killing. Yeah. And then it became widespread when it went to court, and then it became general public consumption. The serial killer was a term used for individuals like this, but it would have not been for Ted Bundy. Here's a question for you out of left field. Red Sox left field, of course. Um, if you were a serial killer, what would be the dark that drives you, Suppose, do you suppose? And would you concoct a catchy name? Two-part question, you're on. 
wow, there's one that I have not been asked and I haven't even asked myself. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that everybody, myself included, and, and it makes it hard when you're writing about a serial killer's thoughts, or at least a presumed serial killer's thoughts, right? I'll leave it at that mm-hmm. so that we don't give anything away. Uh, but this is going to be recurring throughout the series. It's hard because you're going back to look at times in your life when you haven't been the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. When you've let something inside you control a decision that you make. So I always try to point to a couple of things. One, uh, when you're very, very young and you get the bully at school, now some of us, maybe we were the bully, but that's already the monster being unleashed. So that's pretty, that's pretty easy one. But for most of us, we were the, the victim of a bully at some point in our life, even if it was a verbal abuse or whatever. Uh, when you're going through that, if it gets bad enough, you can probably recall thinking, God, if that kid would just move away, or if that kid would die, my life would be so much better. Or I could just kill him, yeah. Yeah, so you try to go, and you don't necessarily think about yourself killing him, you just hope somebody else will kill him. Yeah. Which, by the way, will enter into the series. Yes. Right? Because we want to really investigate all of these kind of dark elements. The other side is when sometimes you know that you didn't do what you would do for somebody else because you don't necessarily like the personality of the person that's involved. In other words, if I was a, an employer and we had 400 employees, there would be a certain number that I liked, either because in a view from someone else's perspective, they assimilated. They were part of the process of moving forward. They were part of the team. And then there were those that just didn't have the right personality. And maybe you didn't give them the same opportunities. Maybe you didn't give you didn't listen as well when they were talking. And to me, that's kind of allowing maybe a dark part of yourself to come out because in reality, in, in that setting, we should be equal to everyone. We like to believe that we no longer have any hate or jealousy or prejudice or come on. We have to accept the fact that if we don't learn to understand those things that sit inside us, sometimes it's just a simple concern that we have when we're in the wrong neighborhood that indicates the prejudice that still resides inside us. If you get scared when you walk through a difficult uh, area, uh, an urban area that is not uh, where the money resides, where the best education exists uh, or, or is provided, you're, sig- you're signaling that there is a certain prejudice in that understanding that you should be scared being mm-hmm. in that neighborhood. Mm. And I, I think we just want to ignore that. The same people that, again, young people today, they've got it figured out. Trust mm-hmm. me, I had it figured out 30 years ago. And then along the way, I, I lost it all. I don't have anything figured out. And I think that's just common for all of us. And so we have to be real careful when we start judging, because as we judge and we point the finger at other people, that is really when we are allowing the darkest parts of ourselves to step out and be seen by others. And we're all guilty of it. Well, Dr. LeBeau, this time on the couch has been really profound, and I thank you for your... No, I mean, and you didn't give me a catchy name, though. Let's pretend... Uh, the catchy yeah. name. I mean, come on, I, I gave you a question you'd never heard before. I'm gonna well, really... to, to be honest with you, I would use one that I put in the book, the foliage flogger. The foliage flogger. Yes, I would be the killer that would kill in the woods because I prefer woods over, over water. Uh, a forest and, and uh, uh, you know, mountains over water. So I'm sure I would be a killer like the killer in here. And I, I would kind of get a, I would kind of enjoy, I'd get humor out of being called the foliage flogger. But isn't flogging uh, much like soft whipping, right? Yeah, well, well I would take my time. Come on now, I'm not going to, if I'm really getting, uh, having a good time with this, I'm not going to rush it. Wait. <laughs> 
<laughs> in a world where one man is dangerous, he'll flog you to death, but it's going to take a long time. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, we're not going to rush it here. We're going we're gonna to take all the necessary steps, and then we'll leave out te telltale signs. Oh, God, dude, that is so... Okay. Well, I don't know what... Well, you asked. Yeah, I just... No, no, no. 100%. 100%. All right. Before we get to rapid-fire questions and begin our wrap-up, I always ask all authors their favorite piece of writing advice. It can be something you've learned from someone else, something you've read and picked up, your personal insight. What would you, Brian LeBeau, offer aspiring writers? I think that the, the hottest thing for a writer to learn, but the most important thing for them to master, not, I'm not saying that I've done that, but I think you have to if you're going to be a successful writer, is to really get inside yourself. The world presents you all of the stimuli. You can travel, you can see other parts of the, uh, of the planet, you can visit different people, different cultures, learn things. But the fact of the matter is the most interesting stories, uh, the most interesting things that you can possibly ever witness are the ones that you're gonna dream up in your own head. And so don't be afraid to put them on paper because some people really are afraid to. They're, they're afraid that other people will think that's who they are. Be honest, put it out there, we all have you know, really strange dreams, fantasies, ideas about what we th we can and can't do, let it out there and then let people judge and be willing to take the criticism. It's it's just a part of life. You, you're not exactly. going to succeed unless you get in the arena. Yeah. So just get in the arena and be full in, all in, let it out there and let people critique it the way they want to. That is awesome advice. And I got to tell you something. I, I get up very early in the morning so I can get reading in. And I was reading your book and I was making notes about another project that I'm working on. And I was making notes and they were very dark, uh, dark underbelly of the world and so forth. And uh, I won't go into any detail, but I thought, wow, how do you start your first day of the week with these kind of thoughts? And I'm like, well, it's just part of what we do, right? Back to your point, you can't judge that. It's we're, we're just creating fiction, right? And some of those things reside in us and we aren't aware of it. They Sometimes they reside and they bubble up and that's when we get the germ of an idea to then go forth. But uh, yeah, that's great advice, Brian. All right, rapid fire questions. Very easy. I'm going to take it easy on you. It's been a nice fourth holiday. You need to come back and go slow. You're on a long cross-country road trip with the family. Now, there's there's something, technology you may remember that's called a CD. Maybe you didn't have a CD. Maybe it's satellite radio. But what I want you to do is tell me what, what station or genre of music you'd be listening to for that long drive across the oh, country. Oh, 60s and 70s folk. Oh, Really? Simon and Garfunkel. Mamas and Pop. Yeah. Mamas okay. and Papas. Yeah, you can go right down the list. All of okay. that. Okay. Uh, first one. That's solid. I like that. All right. Now, as you depart for this long uh, vacation at the end of that road trip, because you're, we're going to pretend, because I was thinking you're in a, uh, Massachusetts or something. Oh, he's going to drive across the country, then he'll uh, land in Los Angeles and fly to Hawaii for the holiday. Dude, I just make this stuff up. You can't do it. All right. So you've packed only two books. Only two books. What are they? Uh, Dennis Lehane's Mystic River. And uh, probably going all the way back to Jane Austen. Oh, boy. L look at you, surprise boy. Uh, Dennis, This we're talking about uh, the Clint Eastwood movie, right? That is what popped yeah. into my... Oh. If you want to... The print in Dennis Lehane's Mystic River is exactly the print I used in this novel. Because they're similar length. Look at you, dude. You, see, your attention to detail is off the chain. Wow. Okay. Wow. Always impressing me. Number three, finally. 
disturbing behavior has just been acquired by a Hollywood studio. Who, who do you see playing both leads, Mo Lumen and Detective Francis Palmer? Okay, so Francis Palmer is very easy, a young Harrison Ford. Uh, that would be exactly, even if you look at his description, that's him. Okay. But it would be his like witness period, early to mid 80s period for him. Perfect. For okay. Mo Lumen, I don't think that you can use a big star. I think oh. you're finding someone who's unknown. Uh, they should probably be fairly big. Think of the Green Mile when yes. Michael Doc, uh, Clark Duncan play that role we yes. weren't i mean he was known but he wasn't a big actor uh -uh. and and so i think you have to do the same thing you have to identify someone that's unknown for that role and it's going to be a challenge that is a hard role to play yeah yeah he was a big actor in both stature and he yeah really was. all right folks to learn more visit brian lebeau lebeau i always want to would it be lebeau lebeau would it be franche lebeau the beautiful yeah. it's good for my oh. wife not, not so much for me Brian the Beautiful. Yeah, I would uh, probably say it is more about your wife than you, but that's okay. BrianLeBeau.com. Follow him on Instagram as I do at BrianLeBeauWriter and Facebook at Brian K. LeBeau. Dude, this has been awesome. David, I loved it. It was great fun. I got to tell you something. I pulled up the map while we were talking. You are directly, as the crow flies, you're directly across. You're probably an hour from me. Oh, not even. It takes yeah. about 45 minutes. My wife goes there to the beach constantly. I do apologize that I did not know that because we would have sat down. I would We would have done it right here on the back veranda and uh, right under the palm trees and enjoyed ourselves. Nice. Well, next time. there's always next time. The next book comes out next year. Beautiful. Well, keep us posted. Brian LeBeau, thank you again. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you, David. Now, there's a lively guy, right? Brian LeBeau, the book, A Disturbing Nature. Thanks again for joining us, Brian. Just another part of our Discovering New Author series. And as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, sometimes you want to kick off the new season with a bang. And I thought, you know, my bang is going to be a brand new author. How about that? Now, next week, as you heard at the top of the show, Brad Thor has a new book called Rising Tiger. I am going to start it today, as soon as I get off the show, as I prepare for Brad Thor next Thursday. So please put it on your calendars, make plans to attend. I do want to mention this. In three weeks, Dean Kuntz is going to be on the show. Dean's going to be on the 21st of this month. And this book right here is The Big Dark Sky. I have two copies of this that I'm going to be giving away to a lucky listener viewer in the Thriller Zone audience. Here's how easy it is to win. You're going to send me an email, number one. The subject line, you're going to say, I want Dean Koontz's latest book. Easy. And number three, inside the email, just simply tell me why you want this particular book. It can be that you're a huge fan, uh, that you've never read them and you want to read them. That's all you got to do. P.S. Tell me where you're writing from, whether it's down the street, across the country, around the world. That's all you got to do. One, email thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Number two, I want Dean Koontz's book in the subject line. Number three, this is where I'm writing from and this is why I want the book. That's all you got to do. Yes, because you know what? I'm gonna take all those entrants, I'm gonna put them in a fishbowl, have my lovely and talented and brilliant wife, Tammy, reach in, pull out the winner, and we'll announce it on the show. That's all you gotta do. Easy peasy. All right, 
I think that's about all our housekeeping that we need to do. So do me a favor. Join us next time wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcast, or Google Podcast, or Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever it is. And of course, a lot of people just go right to the website, thethrillerzone.com, and they find out where they want to listen at that time. Either way, I'm David Temple, your host. Always pleasure to see you and hear you and talk to you and communicate with you. And I'll see you next time for another edition of the new season of The Thriller Zone.